welcome to Know Thyself. Today I'm speaking to Paul M. Sutter. He is an astrophysicist, a writer, speaker, producer, on-air host. He's been on podcast, television. I saw some movies on IMDb with you in them. Yes, it's very frightening. In fact, uh, a movie called UFO will be out this September. Uh, it's, it's distributed by Sony. I don't know right now what the distribution channel will be, whether it's a theatrical or a digital release. Uh, I was a science consultant on that film and the director and writer, uh, enjoyed my company so much. He put me in a speaking role, uh, opposite David Strait there. And that's very exciting. Well, Paul received his PhD in physics in 2011. I have a split position. I'm an astrophysicist at Ohio State, and I'm the chief scientist at Cosi Science Center, which is the science center here in Columbus. You've spoken at over 100 seminars, colloquia, given conference talks at institutions around the world. Where I caught up with you was on the Ask a Spaceman podcast, which is just bafflingly good, I have to say. I'm in awe of the way that you can explain these concepts in a way that even I can understand. And not only that, but make them entertaining. Oh, that's really great to hear. I I always get a kick when when people tell me they enjoy all my cheesy metaphors and corny jokes. Uh, And then also happen to learn something about the way the universe works. You make me wish I could go back to college for 10 or 15 years, try to learn some of what you cover. Of course. But hey, the podcast is cheaper than that. I was going to say, yeah. And as soon as I had to solve a partial differential equation, I'd just be like, oh, that sucked all the joy out of it. So the podcast is much better. Yeah, never mind. So you've also been a contributing editor to Space.com. You've been syndicated to CBS News, Scientific American, Microsoft Network, and more. So I'm so happy to be able to speak with Paul today. He's a tireless teacher, a dynamic voice, and I'm thinking you're probably going to be a household name pretty soon here. So Paul Sutter, thank you for oh, being on the podcast. Hopefully in a yeah, hopefully that's in a good way. Yeah. I want you know, <laughs> there are multiple paths to becoming a household name. I want to pick the one that's known for science. So you don't subscribe to the there's no such thing as bad attention. I think my wife would be very upset if I attracted Severe negative publicity. Well, as I look through all of the things that you accomplish, I have to ask, do you ever sleep? No, I sleep. I just try to be very efficient where if I come up with some cool metaphor or some cool topic, uh, I present that topic in as many different ways as possible. So I'll do a podcast episode about it. I'll, I'll do some YouTube videos about it. It gives me some knowledge base and gives me some cool metaphors to use in my radio show or, or in my book that's coming out. And so I try to use the whole the whole cow, the buffalo. <laughs> well, one of the things I enjoy is that you obviously love what you do. So when did you develop this love for astrophysics? Yeah, it's one of these things that as a kid, I was always obsessed with space and had a bunch of space books. And my parents were very cool feeding that fire and giving me access to lots of books, you know, from the library and bookstores. And... Something that I realized, or now I realize, is that as a kid, I never associated all this cool science stuff with an actual profession, with an actual job that actual human beings engage in. I don't know. I just abstracted these concepts so that it was something that other people in the past or in distant places figured out. And so in high school, when I was choosing careers and trying to figure out where to go to college, I ended up going into computer science because I was always a computer geek too. And that was a thing that people do. And it wasn't three until three years into college that I took an astronomy course as an elective. The The professor pulled me aside and said, I'm an actual astronomer. This is my actual job. 
uh, and you seem like you like this and you seem kind of smart, you could do it too if you if you felt like it. Within a week, I switched majors to physics and never looked back. To me, it's taking that that childhood joy and and getting paid for it. And there's no better thing in life. Well, you've also, I saw you've spoken in some of your lectures. I looked through your CV. You've spoken on what we can learn from a void. And that to me is such an interesting yeah. idea. What can we learn from, to me, what I think of when I think of a void is nothingness. So what can you learn from nothing? Yeah, and, and that's actually one of the greatest paradoxes of my research. You know the old joke that, uh, you know, an expert is something who knows more and more about less and less. Uh, I took that to the absolute extreme where for a few years, one of the main areas of my research was a topic called cosmic voids, which are vast regions of absolute nothingness in the universe. And I became an expert on it, mostly because there's only like five people studying them in the world. So if you're one of those five, you're automatically an expert. So we are speaking and to one of the top five scientists on cosmic voids in the universe right now yes because there's only five and so by default there i'm in the top five <laughs> and these cosmic voids are absolutely fascinating to me i, I was i was pulled into them in one of my postdoctoral appointments uh suggested to me as as a intriguing research line and i was just fascinated by using nothing and more specifically how much of nothing and where is it to learn about the universe? By looking at the holes in the Swiss cheese, we can figure out the cheese itself. It's like the negative space in art or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like you have to listen to the notes that aren't played to understand the, the jazz ensemble that is the universe. Uh, I was part of a network of a few other postdocs and grad students who worked as a team. We had two independent lines that we were following. One was just trying to understand these cosmic voids as an entity. Like, here is a pattern in nature. Here is a structure. What are their properties? What are their demographics? You know, you know, where do they like to go out to dinner? You know, what's what's their favorite hobbies? Everything about them. And then the second thing is, how can we use these to learn about the history and growth and fate of the universe? And we learned a lot about cosmic voids as a structure. And we were able to introduce into the larger cosmological community. Cosmologists are people who study the whole entire universe. We are able to introduce cosmic voids as a serious probe of the history of the universe where we can work back from the properties of voids. We can extrapolate to the properties of the whole entire universe. And this is something that the cosmological community has been flirting with for decades, but our group finally had the com right combination of of statistics, of good uh, surveys, of real data, and uh, theoretical methods uh, that led us to produce some some halfway decent results that 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 put voids as a player. Voids are like a subset of a subset of a subset of a subset of an already esoteric concept, which is you know the life of any academic. 
again, a little bit more abstruse than I can comprehend without some significant introductory learning and knowledge base. Right, right, right. Okay, well, I do want to ask you a question that came up for me as I was preparing to interview you. I saw a theoretical physicist named Leonard Mladeno. Did I pronounce that right? He Probably. Was, <laughs> he was speaking to Deepak Chopra. And the reason I want to bring this up is because you hear all the time from New Age types, they talk about energy fields. And to Leonard Mladeno, he said that this was a nonsensical concept and really didn't have any, didn't map onto reality. Yeah, I, I hear these kinds of terms a lot. And I have to agree with Leonard here. It, you can use any words you want to describe the universe, and I'm never going to stop you. But certain words are like trigger phrases for scientists and especially physicists, where it's, oh, you're, you're taking words that, that we kind of invented like quantum fields or quantum mechanics or energy fields. And you're applying them in places where it totally doesn't make sense. Is the universe coded in energy fields? Yes, of course. We have energy. We're bathed in energy from the sun. Uh, there is sound energy permeating this room as I speak. There is heat energy, the vibration of molecules in the air that I can feel on my skin. We are surrounded by energy. This is the entire game of physics, which is trying to understand and describe all the sources of energy and motion in the universe. And that's about it. If, if you extend, if you try to extend beyond those concepts, well, then you're outside of physics, you're outside of observation, you're outside of experiment, which for all intents and purposes means you're outside of reality. What is a field then, if you were to describe to somebody who wasn't familiar with physics? When you use the word field, yeah. what are they referring to? Yeah, yeah. A field, a field is actually a mathematical term. Have you ever seen uh, like Al Roker, Today Show style map of the United States where it shows the temperatures all across the United States. Yes. Like, oh, it's a balmy day. It's, you know, 85 in Philly today and a hot one, 98 in Miami, but in the South, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yes. You are okay. staring at a mathematical field. A field is a mathematical description of you give me a place. I will give you a number. So a temperature field of the United States means you give me a city, I'll give you the temperature in that city. That's the temperature field of the United States. They portray it as an entity with actual physical presence that can somehow influence what's happening on those around you and the universe at large. But you're saying a field is just a, a model, a description, or a mathematical interpretation. Right. Yeah. And it's, yeah, um, you're actually on the right track. That's what I was going to get to next, which is there are all sorts of fields. There are temperature fields. There are electric fields and magnetic fields and quantum fields and fields and fields and fields. Something that we realized beginning in the late 1800s is that the fields, which we use, which we had been using to describe uh, you know, values place to place throughout the universe, like an electric field is a description of how you would respond to uh, a nearby electric charge, that the fields themselves have physical meaning. 
they're not just mathematical descriptions. There's something more, that the fields themselves obey their own laws of motion, obey their own uh, sets of equations that describe how they evolve and change. The more uh, sophisticated 21st century view of the way that that energies relate to each other and particles and forces, fields are also a player in that. They do exist. They are real objects with physical meaning attached to them. But we've pretty much laid out all the ones that we need to know about. There are some hypothetical fields that may or may not exist. We're trying to figure it out. Those can only be accessed inside of super powerful colliders or in the earliest moments of the Big Bang because of the energies needed to unlock them. Normal, everyday interactions. We know about all those fields. Oh, you just blew my mind. So a field is a thing. It's not just a descriptive mathematical fiction. Yes. This is something we've only realized in the past hundred years or so that fields are things or fields can be things. A temperature field is just a mathematical description, but an electric field is its own thing. Okay. I want to move to the Big Bang cosmology. I was wondering if you could give us mm-hmm. a very brief summary. If you had to make an elevator pitch, let's say that you're Lemaitre or something and you're trying to pitch your idea and describe it very quickly. What Do is... I speak in French then? Yeah. <laughs> if you can, that'd be, that would be even more impressive. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a feeling I would understand it about as well also. But if you could just tell us, summarize the Big Bang, how would you do it quickly? Yeah, here we go. 13.8 billion years ago, the entire observable universe was compressed into a small ball about the size of a peach and had a temperature of over a quadrillion degrees. And then the ball got bigger and cooled off, and here we are. That is a very quick summary. So here's the question, of course. The crazy part, the crazy part is that that is supported by multiple independent lines of evidence. I understand that you can push the model back only so far, and before that... You really can't even describe it or speak about it in exactly, terms. Exactly. Why is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we know our universe is expanding and we've known this for about a hundred years. Edwin Hubble, uh, great astronomer, was the first to unlock this. And so we know our universe was smaller in the past and smaller things. If you compress the same amount of stuff into a smaller volume, it's hotter. So our universe was hotter in the past and it had a higher density. And you know that if you take stuff like a a ball of gas and squish it down, eventually it gets so hot, it changes state. It goes from being just a gas, it turns into a plasma, a high temperature, high energy, high density state of matter. And we understand the physics of plasma just fine. So we can figure out, we can understand theoretically with our mathematics, the state of the universe when it was say, a million times smaller than it is now. And we can use that to make predictions, uh, to compare against observations so we know we're on the right track. But then if you push that thing even smaller, you push it down so that's the size of, say, an atom, it changes state again into a more exotic state of matter, a state of matter that we can only access inside of our most powerful particle colliders. We have a vague understanding of the physics in that kind of situation, that kind of extreme environment. We have some headway, you know, we have some mathematics, it's not entirely consistent, so it's a little bit hazier. 
And then you can push that universe down even smaller. So it's even smaller than, say, an atomic nucleus. And at that stage, the universe is in such an exotic state that we have no idea. We don't have any mathematics to guide us. We don't have any experiments. We don't have any observations. We don't fully understand the nature of that, of the universe when it's in that extreme state. After that, things get more clear. Things become more tractable. We have the technology to grapple with it. But in the earliest stages of the universe, we simply don't know what's going on. It's incredibly speculative what the nature of the universe is in that state. And is this a firm barrier? Is it possible that one day we will know more about the universe in these very, very early states? Yeah, it's certainly possible for us to learn more. That We could have a better understanding of physics under extreme conditions. We could figure out some way to unlock it observationally so we can see it, see, understand what it's like. I can't put a time frame on that. It will probably require one or more Einsteins coming along in the next century for us to figure it out. So it's not necessarily a hard barrier, and it's and it's a barrier that's uh, let's say permeable. It's we can get some insight into that epoch that lead to observational consequences that we can observe in the universe today. We're making progress. You know, it's it's not exactly super fast, but hey, how often do we get to study the most extreme conditions in the universe? So what came into existence at the time of the Big Bang? One of the, the key points that I try to get across in when I talk about the Big Bang is, you know, the Big Bang is such a loaded term nowadays. Like, you know, people come into the conversation with, when they just hear the Big Bang, like immediately there's like a paragraph that runs off in their head. And they think about the creation of the universe and they think of an explosion going off somewhere over there where over there is very nebulously defined and it blows up like a nuclear bomb. And then all of a sudden there are stars or something. What I try to emphasize is that the Big Bang is not a model or a theory of the creation of the universe. It's not. It's not what it does. No, that is surprising. The Big Bang, yeah, the Big Bang is a model of our history. It's a model of the history of the universe, not its origins. So this is the exact wrong podcast for this discussion because, because, because the Big Bang has nothing to say about the origin of the universe. It's silent on that topic. I was going to say my podcast the, is published under history, so maybe that does fit. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. We'll take it. Um, the Big Bang just describes the early history of the universe. And, and the, like the Big Bang continues to happen. The Big Bang is just the expansion of the universe and, and all the surrounding consequences of that simple statement. Where did the universe come from? Does that question even make sense in the context of something like the universe? That is something, one, that may not even have an answer. And two, the answer sits outside of our current paradigm of the Big Bang. It's, it's an extension. It's something new to describe that earliest moment. It's not in the Big Bang picture. So I understand that there is a term, the singularity. And what does the mm -hmm. singularity refer to in Big Bang cosmology? Right. So singularities uh, appear in physics 
when the mathematics produces an infinity. If you have a point that uh, is infinitely small, then you have created a singularity. And the singularity is the ultimate manifestation of you're doing something wrong. That is, the, that is nature's sign to you in the mathematics that your mathematics are incomplete, that you don't fully understand what's going on. When I was talking about the early earliest parts of the universe, the earliest stages of the Big Bang, and how it's really fuzzy, and we don't fully understand it, you can push the universe all the way back, even smaller than the nucleus of an atom, even smaller than a proton, smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, all the way until the universe is infinitely small. At that point, you have created a singularity, and that is telling you that your model is incomplete. Not that it's wrong, but you don't have a mathematical description of the earliest epochs of the universe. So let me ask you a speculative question. I understand Go that time, space, matter, energy, all of that came into existence at the time of the Big Bang. Is that then not accurate? I can't tell you because I don't know. I can tell you that the that the mathematics that we use here, that the, the model we're working with is Einstein's general relativity. The framework of general relativity is what we use to describe the expansion of the universe and its early history. And it's really, really successful. It's past all sorts of observational tests. The mathematics of general relativity tell us that at a finite time in the past, 13.8 billion years ago, the universe as we know it was infinitely small. We know that that's a ridiculous thing to say and probably wrong. <laughs> because because it, a singularity appears in the mathematics that tells us that our mathematics isn't up to the task of describing the state of the universe in its earliest moments. What is the correct answer? I don't know. It's very disturbing to me, I have to tell you to realize that so much of my understanding of these concepts are kind of like colloquial or, or folk interpretations of how you really understand mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is, this is great. This is a wonderful opportunity. Like, like, you know, like I said, the, the term Big Bang comes with so much baggage that I wish we could almost reset it. Like, let's just come up with a new name, you know, you know, a sexy 21st century name that really pops and sizzles uh, that communicates the essential knowledge of what we do know about the universe, what we are really sure about the universe, while discarding the bits that are either wrong uh, or misguided or contained in parts like things that we don't know about the universe. And so I don't blame anyone for misunderstanding the Big Bang because it's been a part of our culture since the 1950s. And so, yeah, it's going to take a while to fight that battle. Well, and I understand the the term Big Bang was initially kind of a pejorative or a mocking interpretation of the theory itself. Yeah, yeah. Big Bang, when we discovered that the universe is expanding, there were multiple interpretations of the data. Big Bang was not the only available theory to describe the things that the observers were finding. There were other models. The, the biggest competing model is called the steady state model, where the universe has always been around. And as the universe expands, there's continual creation of matter and energy to replenish it. 
The big proponent of this was astronomer, astronomer named Fred Hoyle, absolute genius guy, also somewhat cantankerous. And he did a radio show once, a radio interview, and he referred to the competing theory, which at the time had a very long, cumbersome name, uh, as like, oh, the Big Bang model. And he said later he wasn't trying to be sarcastic. He wasn't trying to put it down. But I don't believe him at all. <laughs> uh, I think he was trying to, to stick it to it uh, because his model is called the steady state model. And doesn't that sound really elegant and fancy uh, versus the Big Bang? So, you know, you know, it's, it's either Fred Hoyle's word or mine. I won't judge you for picking one or the other. And it was a pejorative. It, it, I view it as a pejorative as the Big Bang didn't make any sense. So why did Fred Hoyle's steady state model lose? And why did the Big Bang win? I mean, what is the evidence that has led to the acceptance of the Big Bang? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is huge. And this is, uh, I'll get to the evidence, but I want to set the stage here. The evidence that leads to the Big Bang over steady state or any other cosmological model out there is totally revolutionary. And I mean revolutionary in the sense that for decades, centuries, millennia, we've had certain assumptions about the way the universe works and the new lines of evidence that came about in the 40s, 50s, and 60s totally revamped that. And one of the key things, one of the key assumptions we had about the universe was that it doesn't change. That us here on Earth, we have our messy lives, and there's wars and kingdoms and disease and all that, you know, and, and things change. But at some grander scale, the universe is fixed. The cosmos is fixed, both in space and time. In the 1920s, we discovered that the universe is not fixed in space. It does change. Galaxies are moving away from us on average. But what about this concept of the universe staying the same throughout time? Is the universe eternal? That is a fundamental question. And for a long time, that was a theological question, a philosophical question. In the mid-1900s, that became a physics question, an astronomy question. Is the universe eternal? And we found two major things that led us to the conclusion that the universe is not eternal. That the universe of yesterday is very, very different than the universe of today. It will be different than the universe of tomorrow. Our universe changes with time. The character, the nature of the universe changes with time. The biggest piece of evidence of those two that I just mentioned is something we call the cosmic microwave background. The cosmic microwave background is a picture, a literal picture of the universe from 13.8 billion years ago. When that universe, when our universe was a million times smaller than it is now, it had a temperature of around 5,000 degrees. It was a plasma. As the universe expanded and cooled off, it transitioned. It switched from being a plasma to a neutral gas. This released a lot of light, white hot light, literally white hot. And then as the universe continued to expand and cool, that light cooled down too, 
cooled down from 5,000 degrees to 1,000 to 100 to 10, all the way down to around three degrees above absolute zero. And with that cooling radiation instead of being white hot, cooled down to be red, then infrared, all the way down into the microwave. This remnant, this fossil light, was predicted to exist using the Big Bang model, assuming that the universe is different in the past, smaller, hotter, and denser. It was at the same time that theorists were predicting this, simultaneously, totally unbeknownst to them, the cosmic microwave background was discovered accidentally by two engineers at Bell Labs who had built the world's first big microwave antenna. And they, in their fancy antenna, they had a bunch of background static that they couldn't get rid of that wasn't connected to the sun or any particular source on the sky. They cleaned it. They changed out all the cables, everything. They couldn't get rid of this background hiss of radiation in the microwave that had a temperature of about three degrees above absolute zero. These two engineers, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, ended up winning the Nobel Prize for their discovery of this fossil radiation. The group of theorists who actually predicted it, you don't even know their names, and their names are not remembered outside of close-knit physics circles, and I'm not bitter about that at all. That was the major nail in the coffin for steady state and for all other cosmological models, because here it is a literal baby picture of the universe that surrounds us on the sky, visible in the microwave, microwave radiation, that shows us right there, the universe as it was in the past. And that universe looks incredibly different than the universe of today. The universe is not in a steady state. It has not existed for eternity in the same way that it exists today. All that's left is the Big Bang. And there's no other theory that can account for this cosmic background radiation. Nothing. And we checked. It makes me wonder, are people still proposing alternate theories? Or is that considered fringe science at this point? That is, uh, by now, by 2018, that's fringe science. The Big Bang model is the reigning paradigm for good reason. Since the cosmic microwave background, there have been a dozen more pieces of evidence. And now the question is, amongst physicists, astronomers, cosmologists, now the question is at the edges of the Big Bang. Now the question is, you know, what happened in the earliest moments? Can we untangle the complicated physics happening there? Uh, what is the ultimate fate? What are the ingredients of the universe? How quickly does the universe expand and has that changed over the past few billion years? It's about these edges, about the details, the fundamental picture of we live in an expanding universe that 13.8 billion years ago was the size of a peach and at a temperature of a quadrillion degrees, that is not under really under serious debate anymore. I see. Now, I want to go from what you were just talking about to this idea that not only is the universe expanding, it's expanding more and more rapidly over time. Can you explain to us a little bit about dark matter and dark energy? Yeah, for sure. So dark matter is simply matter that doesn't interact with light. And the universe, the contents of the universe, are under absolutely no obligation to be all hot and glowy. And for a long time, we debated uh, 
you know, are there, is there a small component of the universe that isn't all hot and glowy, or is it a big component of the universe? Now it appears that most of the universe does not interact with light. Most of the components of the universe are not all hot and glowy. It's made of matter that is dark, dark matter. So what does we it don't interact understand. with? It does interact with gravity, which is how we're able to see it or detect it or know it exists because nothing escapes gravity. Gravity uh, binds all matter and energy in the universe together and allows all matter and energy to influence each other. So we can see the motions of stars and galaxies. We can see the motion of galaxies inside of galaxy clusters. We can see the motion of, we can see the evolution of the entire universe itself and the way that structures evolve. Structures like cosmic voids are influenced by the amount and kind of dark matter in the universe. Is it possible you could crash into dark matter? So the funny thing, the funny thing about dark matter, this is something we've, we debated about for a long time, you know, physicists and astronomers debated about for a long time. And starting about 20 years ago, we settled on, 25 years ago, we settled on, uh, you can't crash into dark matter. In fact, there's very likely dark matter swarming through you right now. But it doesn't interact with light. It doesn't interact with charged particles. It doesn't participate in that force. So it just sails on through you without you even noticing. We think it might, maybe, we're crossing our fingers, we hope, interact through one of the forces in nature called the weak nuclear force, where we might cap capture a rare glimpse of dark matter through an extremely rare interaction. There are multiple experiments around the world operating right now trying to catch that glimpse of dark matter because if they do and it's confirmed, it's like instant Nobel Prize. We're not too sure about that, though. We don't know the identity of dark matter, but we do have a list of properties, uh, like a detective trying to solve a case and, you know, trying to find that, that crazy mass matter. Like, we know the calling cards, we know the pattern, we know the habit, uh, but we don't know the identity. And what about dark energy? Yeah, dark energy is something we discovered 20 years ago, about 20 years ago, and energy is much more unknown than dark matter. We know very, very little about dark energy. Dark energy is the name that we give to something we observe in nature. This thing that we observe in nature is that not only is the universe expanding, but the expansion of the universe itself is accelerating. Our universe is getting bigger and bigger, faster and faster every single day. We have no idea why. We have a cool name for it. It's got great branding, great marketing slogans. It's on point, but we really don't understand it. What does it mean then to say that we're living in the epoch of dark energy? That's be we say that because the universe hasn't always had accelerated expansion. The universe's expansion started to accelerate about... Five billion years ago. That's when we say dark energy, quote unquote, switched on. It became apparent. It became the dominant component of the universe. Right now, the universe is about 70% dark energy. And it switched on about 5 billion years ago. Accelerated expansion kicked in about 5 billion years ago. Why then? Why not a different time? Why 70%? Why not 25%? Why not 80%? Why not 
has it changed with time? Is it constant or is it evolving? Is it is it distributed evenly throughout the universe or not? We don't know. 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 Okay. That is a concise summary of the state of knowledge. So what would happen then if the Earth could exist long enough and humanity could exist long enough into the future? I've heard it said that this uh, rapidly expanding universe is going to continue expanding to the point where we're not even going to be able to see any of the surrounding stars. Yeah, so right now we live in a universe and there's about uh, two trillion galaxies within our observable bubble of the universe. So the actual universe is much larger, but we only see a part of it because it's only been around for 13.8 billion years and light can only travel so fast. So we only have pictures of out to a certain distance. And because of the accelerated expansion, these edges of our observable universe are being carried away from us faster than the speed of light. And which means we can see light from them now, but we won't see light from them in their future. Well, they'll eventually, essentially be cut off from us. And because of that accelerated expansion, that distance, that limit where we can stop seeing stuff gets closer and closer as the eons progress. And eventually every galaxy, all two trillion galaxies, that we can currently observe, except our very tightly knit, close bound group of us, the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, Triangulum, and a few dozen smaller galaxies that are in a group called the local group, uncreatively, but it's, it's there, the local group. We're all gravitationally bound together. We're stuck together like glue. Everything else every other galaxy will be carried away from us if dark energy continues to do what it does, which we don't fully understand dark energy. So there's a lot asterisk attached to what I just said, but given that everything will be ripped from view and we'll just have our isolated group. So there is a distance uh, within which gravity overrides dark energy. Yes. That's why you don't feel we don't feel dark energy in our solar system because the gravitational interactions in our solar system far outweigh the expansion, the expansive effects of dark energy. So this is kind of a bleak picture. I mean, kind of a cold, dark, lonely picture of the future. Yeah. Sorry to be a bummer, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> well, yeah, but is there any reason to think that, you know, dark energy began to predominate at a certain point? Why couldn't it end its predominance and the universe start contracting again? Is there any reason to oh, suspect that that's impossible? It's certainly not impossible. Certainly not. We don't know if dark energy will evolve, if it will change character, if it will decay and release a bunch of new particles and kind of reinvigorate the universe. We honestly don't know. Everything I said is if dark energy remains constant, which is the best supported uh, statement I can make based on the evidence, but the evidence is pretty vague here. Our uncertainties are rather large in these measurements. And so, so there is a glimmer. If you don't really like that bummer picture of the future of the universe, there is a little bit of hope that you can latch on to. Yeah, I'm going to go with the cyclical. I'm going to go with this recurrent cycle of expansion contraction. We don't think actually the universe is cyclic. There are strong mathematical reasons why our universe is not cyclic. Oh, darn. Um, but yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like, like we live in an era 
and I think this is an amazing takeaway. We live in an era where all these deep philosophical existential questions are now questions of measurement and observation and rigorous inquiry using the scientific method. That itself is something remarkable. Yeah, metaphysics now is kind of resolving itself into physics. I, I don't want to like, I don't want to be the, the arrogant physicist that lays claim to all of philosophy, uh, but we are figuring out a whole lot of stuff. It's pretty fun. That does bring me to an important point. What are humans? Humans, in in a cosmological context, are an extremely high and localized density fluctuation that for all intents and purposes can be ignored when it comes to the history and fate of the universe. But then we are the density fluctuations that are asking the question about the history and future of the universe. So in that view, we're also kind of important. Okay. Yeah, I was feeling a little insignificant there for a moment, but now you've restored my faith in humanity. Yeah, we're we're insignificant, totally. I mean, you know, we can be snuffed out of existence, the universe will keep on growing. But there is significance because of the fundamental physics that we're using to guide ourselves in our understanding of these very deep mysteries are the exact same physics that are operating here on Earth. It's the same forces, the same particles operate throughout the universe. We're a part of this grand tapestry. We can manipulate much more of our local area of the universe than we ever thought possible. Is there any reason to suppose that we can't extend that reach and have control over areas and, and domains that we would never have suspected at this stage of our development? I honestly don't know. I will say that... If you were to transport yourself back 200 years ago and try to explain microwave ovens, LCD panels, this phone conversation, it's not that you would be called a, a wizard or a heretic and burned at the stake. It's just people would think you're speaking gibberish. They have absolutely, no, they would have no context whatsoever for even being able to start building a mental model to understand the words that you're trying to portray. They don't even, it's like, you might as well be talking to an alien when you're talking about these topics. So what will our future 200 years from now look like? I hope it's as equally incomprehensible to us as it would be to someone 200 years ago. So if you were to say, what is the meaning of life? Would you say that's a meaningless question? Absolutely not. And I can't say what the meaning of life is, but I can say what the meaning of my life is, which is to try to understand the universe and celebrate that understanding. And that's good enough for me. You got to love the universe you're in, not the one you want. If people want to learn more about you and your work, what would you recommend? Uh, yeah, I would say just go to my website, pmsutter.com. From there, there's links to my research, if you're into that sort of thing. There's links to the Ask a Space Band podcast that you mentioned, my radio show, my links to my TV appearances, and my blog, and uh, my book, and every all that stuff comes out of my website. And what are you working on now, if I may ask? Right now, I am prepping a, in another appearance on the Science Channel on how the universe works. We'll be filming in July. 
And we're in the final rounds of copy editing on my book, which will be out this November, which is called uh, Your Place in the Universe, Understanding Our Big Messy Existence. Is that available and for pre-order at this point? What a wonderful question. That's the best question you've asked this entire interview. <laughs> it is available for pre-order on Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, the whole deal. Once again, go to my website. Go to pmsutter.com slash book, and that will get you all the info on the book. I'll put up a link to it also on this podcast episode. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much. My word, this has been so generous of your time. I really appreciate it. No, this is fun. This is, these are the questions that fundamental physics is made out of.